welcome to Educated Conjecture, an Ipsos podcast that combines what the public thinks with what the experts think. Each week, Ipsos's Mike College and Sean Simpson are joined by an informed guest to discuss the issues of the day. In this episode, Mike and Sean are joined by Mike Morris, Ontario's first ever elected Green MP, to discuss the role of government in combating climate change. A majority of Canadians say they're doing what they can to combat climate change, but they don't believe the same is true for governments and businesses. With Canadians no longer believing that growing the economy and addressing climate change are mutually exclusive, what policies could be adopted to reduce emissions? And what trade-offs might need to be made? And now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and uh, hello, Sean. How are you today? Welcome to uh, our our latest episode for Educated Conjecture. Thank you, Mike. Nice to see you. And uh, I'm well. Uh, it's a Friday. We're recording this on a Friday, and I'm off on vacation next week. So I'm I'm actually really quite <laughs> quite doing. Oh, well. I gotta looking, I gotta talk I gotta to talk to you about some of that actually, Sean, before you go on vacation. <laughs> oh, great. We have uh, Mike Morris. I'll let you introduce Mike in a second. But Sean, do you want to start off with your stat of the day, or would you like me to? Uh, no, I'll, I'll start. So uh, my stat of the day is taken from our election day poll that we do for Global News. So we surveyed 11,000 voters on election day to understand how they voted, why they voted, what their motivations were, etc. And the stat I want to share with you is that uh, climate change uh, came in as the third most influential issue uh, driving vote. 27% of Canadians, uh, 27% of voters rather, said that uh, climate change was among their top three issues. Uh, and and it's only behind, actually, it's tied with the economy, which is great. It'll set up a perfect question that I'm going to ask for Mike a little bit later. Uh, but it was only behind healthcare and and the pandemic. So clearly, still on the uh, on the radar of uh, of Canadians, even though we're dealing with uh, uh, the pandemic crisis at the moment as well. Was it was a an interesting uh, election? We'll get into it with Mike. Certainly, the uh, I I thought we'd see more focus on climate change. Certainly, post pandemic, there was a lot of discussion let's go back spring 2020, that the pandemic was the precursor to this, the next existential threat that we had, and people were really going to get challenged by it. Now, we know politics got in the way uh, in terms of the the tone and temperature. But I think another thing that might have gotten in the way, and it'll be my stat of the day or my stats of the day, is 76% of Canadians say, you know what, I'm personally, as, a, as an individual, doing a, a good or a pretty good job on dealing with climate change. So they, they sort of say, not I'm absolving myself, but I think I'm doing right. And here's the flip side is, only 48% say the same thing about the federal government. Uh, so around half say it about provincial municipal governments, and only 37% say to business. So there's a, a little bit, and I'd love to get Mike's take on this. On this, um, yeah, I think I'm doing okay, and it's time for for governments and businesses to step up on this climate change issue. Uh, so without further ado, Sean, I'll let you introduce our guests, and uh, we've we've given him lots to already think about. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Well, we're so uh, pleased and 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 humbled and thankful uh, to welcome uh, Mr. Mike Morris to our podcast, Mike. Uh, has uh, just recently, what has it been, a week and a half now, uh, Mike, it just recently yeah. been elected uh, as the new member of parliament for Kitchener Centre, uh, flying the green banner. 
Uh, and uh, we're very, very excited to have him here, uh, not only because he's a newly elected member, not only because he's a Green Party member, but because he's actually my member of parliament. I live in Kitchener Centre, and in fact, Mike and I met uh, for the first time a couple of weeks ago uh, on my doorstep. And uh, when uh, when I saw that he, he won the election, which, by the way, I was telling everybody internally at Ipsos, I'm like, you got a hard code green for Kitchener Centre in a riding model. And Mike knows, I'm not lying. I, that's exactly that's what I was true. saying. You know, you hard code that green. Because uh, I was, uh, I was. you did so well last time, uh, came second by 3,000 votes. And of course, with uh, Raj Saini bowing out of the race this time, I think the door was wide open and um, and uh, the residents of Kitchener Centre uh, saw the path forward and, and, and elected uh, Mike as, as our MP. So welcome, Mike. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, thanks so much, Sean and Mike. Really glad to be here with you, with you both. So the the first question I'll start off with should be should be a pretty easy one. How are you feeling? I mean, it, what what a what a what an welcome amazing to Ottawa. yeah. Welcome to Ottawa. Well, Mike lives in Ottawa, so it's not often we see Green Party members elected in in Kitchener. What a what a feat! Congratulations. How are you feeling? Well, as you said, I think it's been nine or ten days now since the election. I can even clarify. I'm only MP elect at this point still, uh, you know, just got back. I spent two days in Ottawa, Monday, Tuesday for orientation. Um, and so, you know what, after that orientation, you know, some of us did a bit of a tour of the House of Commons in the West Block now. And that was a bit of a moment where you know, I've been, it has felt pretty surreal, um, but it's starting to feel more, I'm feeling more grounded. We're getting getting to work. We are uh, in the midst of hiring staff and looking for a constituency office. The emails are coming in from folks who are asking about support with EI applications, family reunification. Uh, and so the work is, is right in front of us. And so, um, yeah, feeling you know, pretty, pretty excited to get to do this now. As you mentioned, Sean, it's been three years of uh, working alongside hundreds of people uh, to have earned the trust uh, of, of so many neighbors to now be in this position. And so it's, it's pretty humbling. And I'm pretty excited just to get to work. So what did it take to win Kitchener Centre as a, as a Green Party MP? And just so our, our listeners uh, know, the Green Party nationally received 2.3 percent of the of the popular vote. Um, and so that's a uh, that's a big hill to climb to, to win a, a given riding. How did you do it? When did this process start for you and what was that journey like? Yeah, so it started. Um, I made the decision to run in early 2019. Uh, and actually, I, I Start with it now, Mike. Your st- your statistics are a big part of why I decided to run. You know this this discrepancy between the number of people who are doing all that they can individually, and without the the federal and provincial governments doing more, we're never going to move fast enough. Whether it relates to the climate crisis, you know the housing uh, crisis that we're in, long term care, the, the list goes on and on. Um, and so that was a big part of. Of my my motivation to run in, in the first place is just recognizing that it's it's in how we set the rules that we're going to need to address you know moving at the pace that scientists and indigenous leaders and young people have been calling for. In terms of how we did it, it it's not a secret. We just focused on democracy instead of politics. And so what I mean by that is you know Sean, when I was at your door, I did not ask, can we count on your support? Uh, instead we asked what's important to you and we attempted to genuinely listen. And I, I think that 
that's what our democracy should be about. It should be about someone uh, offering to to seek to represent their community and in doing so, listening to a, a wide mix of their neighbors, finding the common ground and seeking to respectfully go to Ottawa to make progress on those. It's my view that that the partisanship, the hyper-partisanship that we're all witnessing in Ottawa, that's not actually helping us make progress. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's probably holding us back. Um, and so in my case, I don't care whose name is on the bill. I don't, it's not of interest to me. You know, a lot of folks have been asking, how are you, you going to work with a, a caucus of two? Well, I actually see it as you know, 337 other parliamentarians I'm looking forward to working with. And I, I think that approach um, to you know, focusing on the priorities first and foremost, to being a voice for our community on, on these kinds of issues, on the things that I heard so often from so many people, um, that, and then just putting in, putting in the work, right? It, um, in 2019, it was over 45,000 doors across the riding, um, you know, over 400 people that joined me in walking street after street, door after door, conversation after conversation. Some were making food so that when a canvasser came back, there was some warm food available, some making phone calls, putting up signs, uh, all the rest. I think just the humble work that hundreds of people did creating space in their lives for our democracy, um, I think that was a really big part of it. You know, the, the number of times I spoke with someone and the person would say, I've never had someone knock on my door from a, you know, a candidate, let alone even just someone, you know, volunteering with a political party or, or, or looking to represent me. And so I think putting in that work was really important, particularly because that was the promise I was making, uh, you know, was was that as your MP, I'm going to work respectfully. I'm going to work hard for all of us. It, you touched on so many things there that, you know, that you know, how democracy should work because uh, and we see it in our data. Right. We we see in our data that the issues you mentioned, you know, whether it's housing, affordability, uh, climate change, climate. It's been two decades, really, since climate change took hold. And it's always hit a. Our clients, when we're talking to them, you know, we've spent probably two decades convincing 85 to 90 percent of the population that climate change is real. And along the way somewhere, we stopped talking about, I think, about the the challenges, how we address it and started politicizing it. And to the fact where I think we got into even the the carbon tax as a um, more of a wedge solution than a wedge issue. Right. So so it, we politicized the thing that we thought would actually solve this. And so I, I'm just interested, you know, it, when you think about where we are now, we're at that. Let's say that at 15 percent, we're never going to convert. They're just deniers. They don't believe in science. They're not going to let's not worry about them because if 85 percent act, we're in pretty good shape. Is there a first domino um, that needs to tip? And I know that's a hard question because <laughs> there's 10. But is there a first domino that needs to tip to align business and government to 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 do to close that gap between how the public feel and what what's happening on the side? Well, first of all, again, I, I believe deeply that it's government that needs to take a lead role. I, I spent a decade, uh, you know, started Sustainable Waterloo Region, uh, helping businesses take action on climate and save money at the same time. Um, and then followed that with other communities across the country came to us asking, you know, how are you getting businesses to pay you money to be a part of going beyond regulation? And so we started Green Economy Canada to then help other communities uh, continue to, to do the same. And uh, but the reality is that the market is still tipped in the wrong direction, right? We, um, to, be, to be clear, our emissions continue to rise the fastest of any country in the G7. 
um, you know, the first conference of the parties on climate was in 1992 when, you know, David Suzuki's daughter, Severn, admonished the adults in the room for not doing enough. And in the time since, we've emitted more than in all the years prior. Um, and so I think we need, need to start by being honest. We're not headed in the right direction currently at a time when scientists tell us it's pretty clear we need to reduce emissions at least 60 percent by 2030. To answer the question directly, Mike, what kind of the first domino why is it that in the midst of this crisis, we're continuing to subsidize fossil fuels far more than clean energy, for example? Last year, we tripled the subsidies. It's $18 billion a year that we're subsidizing fossil fuels. Why not take that money and incentivize homeowners to do the retrofits that we know that they want to do? Uh, or or to look at incentivizing purchases of electric vehicles or, or, or building high-speed rail or the cycling infrastructure we need. We, we, we know that transportation is the largest emission source in Ontario. That's pretty reasonable. Um, let's have that conversation. And let's also ensure that we do it in a just way, that we invest in the people that are on the front lines, in, in the retraining, in the income supports that they're going to need if we're going to be honest about the transition that is already under underway. And can't we find some common ground on that? We've had different governments promise an end to the subsidies over many years. Can we not say maybe this is a time where that maybe should have been done years ago? And could that be a starting point? Our um, polling, Mike, has shown that, that Canadians believe that growing the economy and addressing and combating climate change are not mutually exclusive. You know, we'll say, you know, where are you on that scale? Should we focus more on the economy, more on, on the environment? And people say, well, it, it, it's neither, not, not an either or proposition. We can, we can do both. Um, so what steps do you think we can take? What policies do you think we can adopt to balance those economic and environmental priorities? Yeah, I just don't even see it as a balance. I, I see it more about being honest. If we were to retrofit every building in the country, we would create millions of jobs for carpenters and trades folks across the country. So it's just to me, um, it, it, it's just a false choice. And if, uh, if we had governments that were willing to prioritize and allocate funds appropriately, the fact is we're going to need to retrofit buildings across the country. We're going to need to look at the building code and shift to a net zero building code over the, over the coming years. And as we do this, that's going to create, it's going to shift jobs. Um, but they're the kind of jobs that we need. And, and it also happens to be that, that it's the kind of action we need to ensure that we've passed our kids and nieces and nephews and grandkids a safe climate future. Um, so I, I recognize there will be some difficult trade-offs over time. Um, and what is also true is that there's a lot of jobs to be created here, um, and it's really about how government is setting priorities and and where they're investing, and and that's going di- to uh, dictate where those jobs are. Do we do we need to, in some ways, not drop the environmental push, but say we don't care how we get there? And I go back to um, some of the the first shifts from incandescent light bulbs. Um, you know, they did not pitch those in Home Depot or Canadian Tire as as environmentally saving necessarily. They pitched them as longer life, cheaper for your homes. Uh, and, and they went after people's pocketbooks and said, this is going to solve. They, they Literally, you know, I mean, it was there was green, but it was really a secondary message in a lot of the places. And I'm thinking about something and, and, and you touched on it earlier, you know, housing and affordability. 
how do is there an opportunity on on all those things you said to just let's focus on jobs and the environment piece will come as long as that jobs piece is very clearly similar to the way we have a gender lens on on government spending through an environmental lens um affordable housing you look what the i think it's the squamish nation they're going to develop six thousand homes in a fairly dense part of or they're gonna make it dense outside of bird and outside of vancouver uh i think there's like 85 percent of the spaces don't have room for cars so it's rental it's downtown it's walkable you know um that seems to be a way to address affordability and housing and a whole range of things it's got to be better for the environment as well and, and, and maybe we've got cart before the horse in some of these things and just we've got caught up in our selling of it i, I don't know but is there a way to pitch it differently to make us move well, I'll, I'll share with you two, I think, realities. Um, is One, my neighbors across Kitchener are not shy to be talking about the extent to which they want to see action on the climate crisis that follows the science. And that was true for young people that weren't even eligible to vote. In fact, the day that Sean and I met, one of those young people was out with, with me. She actually encouraged her dad to join her. And so Tate and Derek joined me knocking on door after door, week after week, rain, you name it, they were out. Um, I think Tate's in grade 11, um, you know, a few years away from voting still. And for her, climate is one of the main reasons why she was out there. And that was true of a number of other young people who joined us. It was just as true when I went to a few retirement homes and uh, we would, we're outside, a group of eight people. I asked the same question, what's important to you? No one there was under the age of 85. And again, climate came up. And I heard, I heard some older folks share how they wanted to, that they feel it's important for their grandkids to have the kind of um, a safe climate. They might not have used those words, but, but they talked about the environment and climate. And so I don't want to shy away from being honest uh, about um, the pace that scientists are and indigenous leaders and young people are, are really telling us we need to move at. The second reality, though, I think is some of what you're getting at, Mike, which is with the right government policy, we could ensure that the lower impact option is more convenient, is cheaper, is more accessible. And so when I think when we talk about things like high speed rail, this is the reason why high-speed rail is so important is because it makes it obvious for that person not to buy a car because they're not going to have to deal with the insurance and they're not going to deal with 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 the the, the cost of gas and all the all, all the rest because you're going to have you know a rapid bus line that's going to be running so frequently you don't even need to check the get the schedule it's going to get you to a high-speed rail station get you to Toronto while you're you know working along the way or reading a book along the way that's just a more attractive option than sitting in traffic on the 401 ultimately though it goes back to your original point Mike is I believe that there are so many people across Kitchener and I'm sure across the country who want to be taking that step but we need to make sure that it's those with the lowest income those who um, you know need the support the most that that government sets policies to uh, to ensure that uh, that 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 we take action at the, at the pace that science re- requires. I just I'm done with talking about turning off lights for Earth Hour. Yes, you know that's an important symbolic action, and it's government policy that we need to ensure that we move fast enough. So, Mike, you were talking about you know your experiences meeting people across uh, Kitchener Centre, and and I must say, just as an observer who lives, you know, downtown and in in, in a community, uh, I've never seen a ground game uh, like like yours. Not from a 
you know, a, a long-serving incumbent with the machinery of a party behind them. So, so congratulations on on that. It was it's quite quite amazing to see that. Um, which which sort of leads me to my to my next question, um, uh, because you know, despite the success that 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 you've seen here in in Kitchener Center just recently, and a lot of things that you're saying, you know, my college and I have have polled on, and and in many respects. Uh, you know, Canadians agree with 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 what you're saying, and yet the Green Party nationally is is I think struggling to to, to resonate, struggling to to break through. Why do you think that is? Do you, is it is it seen as a as a one issue party? Is it the electoral system? Is it a problem of leadership? Why is it that we just can't seem to get the Green Party sort of in the mainstream of people's voting calculus? <laughs> That's a question that you both might have better answers for than I do. If I, if I just to my own lived experience, right? Uh, because my experience in in Kitchener, again, the the reason I chose to run with the Greens, if I'm really honest with you both, it wasn't to my political advantage. Uh, when I when I chose to run run with the Greens, they were in fourth in the in the previous election. However, I wanted to ensure that the first choice I made was one that centered my integrity. If I was going to jump into something that I recognized, you know, has all kinds of corrosive forces attached to it, I wanted to share I wasn't making a political calculation, but rather one that gave me the best chance of staying true to myself and, and my values. And so, first of all, Greens, you know, the values when it comes to ecological wisdom and participatory democracy and social justice, those are my values. They're the values of so many uh, folks across Kitchener and also they're the only ones that allow and encourage their MPs to put their communities first and party second. I'm not with you this morning as a spokesperson for the party. Um, I've, I've been entrusted by my neighbors to be a voice for our community. Um, and I think that is something that, that you know, was a big part, as we kind of spoke about briefly earlier, in that shift over 2019 and then again in this past year, um, where a lot of... Um, a lot of folks were, were looking for that. I think we've seen that from, if you look at Mike Schreiner in Guelph or Elizabeth May, but, you know, I'll talk about Mike briefly. He went through a similar experience where he came in second in 2014, broke through in 2018. Um, and in the time since, you know, the number one priority in Guelph, it was water protection. And so the first piece of private members legislation that Mike worked on, you may be familiar with, is the Paris Galt Moraine Act. You know, it seeks to protect groundwater along the Grand River for 800,000 people, Sean, yourself and myself included. Um, And Mike, when it went to second reading, got unanimous support in a majority conservative government with one green MPP. I asked him how he did it. And he said, well, I'm just trying to be respectful. When I ask questions at Queen's Park, he says he's not looking to shame the other person. He's looking to actually understand better to to craft better legislation, while also, of course, keeping government accountable where that's appropriate. Um, and so I think that when you ask me kind of I, 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 I didn't do polls across the country. I, I, I'm similarly disappointed that the green vote wasn't higher across the country. But when I look at my own lived experience in Kitchener, um, and, and many of the people who chose to vote green for the first time this time around, uh, I think in, in a lot of ways, it wasn't, you know, you know, deep affiliation with the green party, but rather it's, hey, here's somebody in my community who seems to actually be wanting to do this for 
the, the right reasons uh, and 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 really actually listening. <laughs> like what what is I don't, I don't have a bunch of talking points I'm showing up with to um, you know to give you about how how awful the other parties are. Um, and I think there's something there about um, that that might start to answer your question. And maybe I'll leave you and others to you know do all the calculus and analysis <laughs> on the countrywide basis. But that's my sense from Kitchener. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And um, I'll, I'll just say, though, however, with only two MPs, you are likely going to be called upon very soon to act as a spokesperson for the, for the, for the party. <laughs> well, and, and the environmental movement writ large. Uh, I, I mean, I think you've uh, you, you may have run for Kitchener Waterloo, but you've uh, you've been handed a larger mantle. And we've we've seen that already in the first yeah. few weeks. Um, yeah. I wasn't expecting to be on power play within 48 hours of, of being elected and, and some of the calls that started to come in. And, and I see that as an opportunity. I said it to so many of my of, you know, folks in Kitchener uh, that that if elected as a green MP would be similar to what we've seen with Mike in Guelph, where people in Guelph, in Guelph might be overrepresented because it's often well, what does Mike Schreiner think? You know, voice of sober second thought. Um, and so when I when when we're saying yes to some of those requests, in a lot of ways we're thinking about you know those are each opportunities to to share another story uh, of another um, another person I met in my com- my community and to to be a voice for some of their priorities and concerns. And so yeah, Mike, we're definitely seeing that already. Um, and, and Sean, it, it is a good point. I, I do recognize as one of two green M- MPs, I will be called on. Uh, uh, to be a voice amongst you know greens across the country, and I certainly welcome that. Um, I also want to make sure I continue to prioritize what I'm really here for, um, and that's you know to be a voice for so, for so so many here. Yeah, I would. You you threw it back to us. Well, you may they may not on purpose, but said I'll leave you guys to figure that. I actually think the greens have been hugely successful in sort of opening Oberton's window over the last couple decades. Right, we may not have had climate change to the same extent and all of the other part let's i know they're all different but as a part of the party platforms for all of their parties if we hadn't had the green party uh, you know when it started right and i think now you're tasked with the conversation we started off with is okay so now we're 85 percent who say that it's a problem how do we move forward to the next step and and i think everybody would say at least when we talk to clients and i talk to neighbors friends and family we don't have two decades to solve it now we have two decades to confirm it's a challenge and a problem but we don't have two decades and obviously you know i i i think there's a there's a neat parallel to um sort of the anti-smoking push with young people yeah right they were the first ones uh who came home to mom and dad and said you know what Mm, that's not cool um forced mom and dad and then we followed with legislation increasingly make it more and more difficult to smoke um the, the reality was we got to a point where everybody said, yeah, it's 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 not great but we need to you know people didn't act as fast as we wanted so what well, we started to limit the number of places they could and we used as much nudge as behavior science as we could until we said okay then we're just going to actually restrict where you can do it and, and and force you into making it really inconvenient we tried cost it didn't it worked to a certain extent and we made it really inconvenient your green wet behind the ears going in probably with all kinds of ideas and, and hopes and, and dreams. Uh, so, you know, what, what are your goals and aspirations in Ottawa? What influence and impact are you hoping to have there? Is there, is there, you know, a key piece of legislation you'd like to, to be involved in that, that you'd like to see coming down the pipeline? Well, I think as a starting point, it involves listening to other MPs. I think what you're getting at there, Mike, again, is this sense of us versus them, uh, the West versus the rest of the country. And um, 
I just don't uh, believe that that's constructive. Um, I, I deeply believe that it takes listening to other folks, un- looking to understand them to try to make progress. That if we're going to do this, we need to do it in a, in a, in a way where, where someone who's a, you know, a pipe fitter in the, in the oil sands that sees themselves in this and, and sees, I mentioned earlier, you know, the kind of income supports and protections and uh, the, the, the training to, to see a livelihood um, for them. Because again, anything else is just being disingenuous. Uh, mm-hmm. The other option is to talk about pipelines that are never going to get built because it's politically expedient. And then that same person is going to be in a worse off position um, uh, in whatever year's, year's time. Look at the Trans Mountain Pipeline. If, if, if we actually export that oil as, as a country with whatever it is, you know, 0.5 or so percent of the population, we would export 17 odd percent of the world's carbon budget. It's it's just not conducive with a safe climate future, and so as a result, that's 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 the science. And so then it comes down to um, how do we best support people who are on the front lines. That's why the Just Transition Act is so important. Uh, that's why this kind of honesty is so important. Um, and so then, get, kind of getting to your question, Sean, in terms of what I hope to bring is first of all, I hope hope you're hearing from me a bit of a different tone. Um, and I know there are others in Ottawa who want the same. Um, and, uh, that's actually one promise you might've heard me say a few times. I can't promise, uh, a neighbor that I'm going to, you know, solve the climate crisis. Um, what I can promise is I'm going to be respectful even when, and maybe particularly so when we don't agree, because my sense is that it's, it's by being respectful, it's by actually listening with us, with a sense of curiosity, listening with the, with the knowledge that I might actually learn something and my opinion might change as a result of this conversation. I don't pretend to have all the answers. I do have a sense of what the priorities are. I'm aware of the, of, of the science and I'm looking, you know, my hope would be to be a part of crafting policy that, um, that respects that science that respects the voices of indigenous uh, leaders across our community and across the country. Um, and that also respects people who are, um, who might be feeling anxious uh, when someone like, like, like myself says, you know, it's time to end the subsidies to fossil fuels um, that we need to, to, to work with that person as opposed to, you know, tuning out or, or, you know, uh, pretending that that's not, you know, those voices are important. Um, and so when I think about my first days in Ottawa, I'm looking to have conversations with as many other parliamentarians as possible uh, to, to hear their pers- perspectives. And uh, I think that's what's going to help inform better public policy. One of the things we've seen is a, a decline or a weakening over the last couple of decades in social cohesion, decline in social capital. And, 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 and I don't think it's because people want the us and them conversation. I think people, we, this, the flip side is we also see decline in public sentiment and direction of the country and a whole range of things generally. Um, and it can be bundled into issues, but I, I really think they clamor for that rowing togetherness, for lack of a better description. Um, and so, you know, if, if we can bring more of that, I, I think there's a real opportunity to raise the um, the perceptions of, of, of governments, the, the, the perceived value, trust, et cetera. I strongly agree, Mike, the, the, the lack of the worsening trust in public institutions, whether it's media or government, I heard that from so many people. Let me step into one of the most uh, divisive examples right now around 
mandatory vaccines. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's important, again, that we're still respectful. I, I don't think yeah. you know, the number of people, I might not agree with you, and I will be clear and I will be honest. I'm not going to pander and change an opinion depending who I'm speaking with. I will, you know, my position's on uh, my website. I'll be honest about where I stand. But I also don't mean to be whipping up. I, I don't want to alienate someone who feels differently. I, I'm actually going to, I'm willing to listen. Um, and then I'll be clear about where I stand and, you know, welcome to you send me the research you might have. Um, I think that that process um, and taking that, it takes longer, right? <clears throat> Democracy takes longer than pol- than politics. If you just, you know, say I'm not w- willing to chat because we feel differently and move on to the next conversation. Again, that you're going to, you're get, you, you'll move more quickly. And so I think there's some value in in having those conversations. And I think we're going to, again, maybe build. I had a number of people say, you know what, Mike, I'm not going to vote for you, but I respect you at least. And to me, that was meaningful. Like I wasn't there to be asking for their vote anyhow. Um, and uh, I think that kind of matters still. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the us and them is a, <laughs> I say this nicely, a political tactic more than it is a reflection of society. Um, it's easy to it's easy to do us and them. And, you know, I, I'll go back to the start of the pandemic since you raised it. You know, at the time of the first lockdowns, there was no us and them. There, our, our leaders were very focused on, uh, we're going to follow the science. We're going to follow what we, is best, what we see as best practice. And we're all in this together. And they emphasize it over and over and over again. And I think, and Sean, you might be able to correct me, I think when we first talked about lockdowns and shutdowns, we only had about 60% of the population who said, I thought it was a good thing. That turned as we talked about it. We're at a point where I think it's closer to 85, 90% who say they think vaccines are a good thing and meant that we should be mandatory. And yet we've made a huge division over that 90, 10, as opposed to the 60, 40, where we brought people together. And and we did it for political tactics. I, I think there's a real opportunity to, to bridge that through the exact kind of messaging you're talking about. Just one more question for you, Mike, if you'll, if you'll allow me. Um, how do we attract more you know, if you put parties and policies aside, but how do we attract more young, dynamic, inspirational people to 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 run for office? More Mike Morris's. More Mike Morris's, yeah, for every party. That's kind of you to say. Um, I feel as a, it's something I'm continuing to be learning a lot about. But I'll I'll give you an, I'll give you a, a quick story. I um, just just before the in the last days of the campaign, I was invited to a local high school to chat with a few students and I when we when we got over there I thought there might be five or so students that might want to have a conversation I show up and like half of their football field is full of students that wanted to ask me a question or two and hear a bit of what I had to share so don't tell me that young people aren't engaged in our democracy to me answering your question is answering what's the gap between all those young people that are showing up and then, you know, how that erodes, you know, their trust over time. Um, and so I think it's about building up, you know, the quality of our democracy that a young people might see themselves in it, as opposed to just seeing the mudslinging and the lies and the rhetoric that um, that I think wears all of us down and young people included. And then to say, well, is that really a, a mechanism or a venue where I could see myself making change or am I better off? choosing a different tactic. Uh, and so I think, you know, actually listening to the voices of young people to understand, um, you know, where that trust might be eroding and, and why, 
and then building up our democracy in a way that it might be something that they might see themselves in in more. And that's true for, you know, you mentioned young people. It's it's true for various demographics that are underrepresented and um, ensuring that changes are made to address the systemic inequities that are that that, that are holding uh, those people back and, and barriers at play. And you know, we didn't get into it in depth here, but, you know, you mentioned the party and some of the term, turmoil, you know, enemy Paul, as an example, has faced barriers um, that I would not have faced in the same shoes. Um, and we have to recognize, acknowledge that 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 uh, that that systemic inequity is present and be be ready to make changes, because, again, that the interest is there. You asked about young people and. I just so appreciate the chance to break away any mythology around the number of folks. Oh, young people aren't engaged in our democracy. They don't vote. Uh, I just didn't see that play out to think of the number. And it was some of the most, you know, on on the worst, rainiest nights, it was the high school students who still just brought an umbrella and came knocking on doors and said, let's go, because this matters. This is bigger than anything else, that, 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 that the future, that their future matters. Um, and that to me was really inspiring. I, I think that's a, a great way to, to cap things. I think we could talk to you for another 45 minutes if you had the time. But um, I, I, I thank you very much for taking time out. I, I know you have a hugely busy agenda um, and you're drinking from a fire hose and <laughs> house of commons uh, in terms of learning everything. I wish you all the best and uh, hopefully we can catch up again uh, after you've uh, weathered a few storms and uh, been able to talk about some of the progress you've made. Thank, thank you both again for asking me to, to be a part of this, and I would so enjoy that. Let's make sure that that happens. Would would love to do it. Well, and, and next time I'm in Ottawa, Mike, I'm hoping I can swing by the House of Commons to see you in action. Would would love love that, Sean. Absolutely. Great. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Educated Conjecture. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Public Opinion and Informed Insights. If you have a topic you'd like to see covered on an upcoming episode, please send us an email at publicaffairs at ipsos.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-A-F-F-A-I-R-S at ipsos, I-P-S-O-S dot com.